Matthew 24, we come to the second message on the midpoint of the tribulation. That time within the seven years of tribulation that marks the halfway point in events. The first three and a half years, Jesus Christ describes in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, as the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of the trouble. We, we, we called it more like um, warning signs of that which is to come. And we considered these events, the, the midpoint events, to be the climax of what Jesus called in Matthew 24, this beginning of sorrows. And you recall as we described it last time, we likened the, the first three and a half years to kind of that slow and steady incline. I, I likened it to a roller coaster, right? You, you get on that roller coaster and you kind of make that little dip and then, and then the roller coaster gets up and it catches that train and then click, 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 click up the roller coaster and, and each click is the anticipation of knowing that at some point the clicks are going to stop and you're going to kind of crest over that hill and then it's a fast and steep drop to the bottom of that first plunge. And, and so as we consider what's going on here, the first three and a half years we might say is kind of that ticking up to the top of the roller coaster and the midpoint of the tribulation being the crest, being that climax, being that point where things really start to rumble. Now, of course, the second three and a half years is just as long as the first three and a half, right? And it's three and a half years. But the events are really going to be picking up as far as the wrath of God, the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. And so we talked last time, we considered two particular events surrounding the midpoint of the tribulation. First, we focused upon the two witnesses. You recall these men, uh, very Jewish in character, called to preach the gospel throughout the first half of the tribulation. The two witnesses had a ministry for the first three and a half years, 1,260 days, 42 months, um, and then they were killed. Recall that during their ministry, none could destroy them. They preached the gospel. If anyone tried to hurt them, fire would consume them until the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit destroys them. Remember what happened on that day. The day they are destroyed, they're singing. There's joy. There's literally worldwide celebration. People are sending gifts one to another because these, these two witnesses that had tormented them were dead. We said that perhaps it is even that during that time, people attributed the three and a half years, the beginning of sorrows, the, the signs and the wonders of those first three and a half years with the ministry of the witnesses so that they thought, well, if the witnesses die, maybe all of our troubles will end as well. Well, they're killed. And then three and a half days later, the Scriptures say they will be raised to their feet, they will ascend into heaven before their enemies. The second major event that we looked at around the midpoint of the tribulation was Satan and his angels being cast out of heaven. We know that as of now, Satan still has access to the throne of God. We see it in the book of Job. 
that Satan has access to the throne room of God. That he can petition God for things. That he can still speak with God. But there's coming a point, and that point is the midpoint of the tribulation, when Satan and his angels will no longer have access to heaven, to the throne of God. They will be cast out. Remember we saw in Revelation chapter 12 the events um, surrounding this casting out as... Um, that there was, uh, John saw the vision of a great dragon, a great woman who was giving birth and then a dragon waiting to devour the child and the child being taken up into heaven and so the dragon uh, seeks to destroy the woman and, and goes after the woman and that being this time around the midpoint of the tribulation when the abomination of desolation will take place. And the, the particular reason for these events surrounding the midpoint are focused upon the reality that Satan realizes his time is short. That there's not a lot of time left. Now tonight we look at the rest of the events surrounding the midpoint of the tribulation. And the particular idea of these events all surrounds what we know from Matthew 24 and from Daniel 9 as the abomination of desolation. However, we will go beyond that a little bit. We'll broaden our horizons. But with this event comes the divine sign to the Jews that they are under judgment, that there is something terribly wrong with the peace accord that they've been given, that, that, that things aren't what they seemed. And we see this in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. It'll be up on the screen behind me, but let's read together. Beginning in verse 15, we'll read through verse 22. Jesus speaking, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not seen, excuse me, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. In these verses, we see Jesus telling those disciples who walked with him in that day that they will see an event called the abomination of desolation. It's a man, according to this, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. The abomination of desolation can stand, which means it's a man or perhaps an idol. But when you see this abomination stand in the holy place, Jesus says this will be a signal to the disciples of Christ that they need to flee. Now, this abomination of desolation is first mentioned in Daniel 9.27. We've looked at that verse extensively uh, since we began this series in Revelation. The verse that says at the midpoint of the tribulation, then the prince that shall come will make the uh, abomination of desolation come to pass. And the character of this man is taught in several places, particularly in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 7 as well as in Daniel 11. In Daniel 7.25, we read this about this, this abomination of desolation. 
And he shall speak great words against the Most High. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. So this description in Daniel, have, uh, Daniel 7 is of one that is called the eleventh horn. He's to arise out of the Roman Empire. These horns represent kings, particularly over nations. And one of these kings will be a great blasphemer of God and a persecutor of God's people. That's what this verse says. These people, called here the saints of the Most High, are likely led primarily by, as we learned about already, the 144,000 Jews that are saved during the first half of the tribulation, 12,000 out of each tribe in Israel. And they will be given to this 11th horn, the Bible says, for a time, a times, and half a time. We've talked about that phraseology already, right? That when we see a time, that's one unit, times, that's two unit, and then in this particular verse, the dividing of times, or half of a time, that's half a unit. One plus two plus half is three and a half, three and a half years. So there will be a three and a half year time following the abomination of desolation when the saints of the Most High will be given over to this wicked man, when the saints of the Most High will have to endure this man's persecution, where Israel will flee before the greatest enemy it's ever known. As we step into that final three and a half years of the tribulation, the Bible presents four world powers that are in play at this three and a half year point. There is a revived Roman Empire, what we would simply call today probably the Western World Empire. We already see this Western World Empire very strong. European Union, United States of America are the, the strong cogs in that Western world empire. But we see three other empires mentioned around this time as well. We see a king of the north. We see a king of the south. And then we see the kings of the east. And all of these are mentioned, depending on where you're going in prophecy, as kings that are opposed to the Western world empire and yet still opposed to God as well, and God's people. And see, th this is important, because when you think of end times prophecy, what you often think of associated with end times prophecy is one world government, don't you? One world government equals end times prophecy. But in reality, one world government will not be established until the second half of the tribulation. At, during the first half of the tribulation... Western world empire is, of course, still dominant, and it will be until the end. But there are still four primary civilizations operating on this earth. And you can even see these, these, these civilizations today. You can see the shadow of these civilizations in, in world politics today. So let's talk about each, each one of these empires that we will be dealing with for the next three and a half years, not of preaching time, I promise, but of, uh, of prophecy. Daniel sees this beast, which is the Western world empire led by Antichrist in Daniel 7. And he sees him as having ten horns, which is ten kings or ten realms, a ten, 
king confederacy. We also saw this in the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, remember, of the head of gold. And, and, and as we got down to the toes, there were ten toes of iron and clay, iron mixed with clay. The idea of some were strong, some were not, but there were ten of them coming out of the Roman Empire. Those ten toes of, I believe it's Daniel 4, I believe it's Daniel 4, are the ten horns of the fourth beast that Daniel sees in Daniel 7. These are ten kings that rule ten nations that arise out of the Western world. And then Daniel says he sees an eleventh horn rise up out of this beast. And the eleventh horn is a man, perhaps a nation, um, led by a man, but it plucks up three of those ten horns. In other words, three of those kingdoms are overthrown by this man or this nation led by this man. And this is the man that we know of as Antichrist. We see the same picture given in Revelation 13. A beast rising out of the sea. Remember in prophecy, the sea is the Gentile world. The land is Palestine. The first beast we see, Antichrist, and his, his nation rise up out of the sea. The second beast we see, who we'll see is called the false prophet, he rises up out of the land. He'll most likely be a Jew that is leading people astray to worship Antichrist because of what we see in prophecy. So, in Revelation 13, we see a beast rising up out of the sea and it says that he has seven heads with ten horns. And while we know these horns to be kings or realms, it's likely that the seven heads are representative of the seven different forms of government that the Roman Empire have assumed throughout their existence. There have been seven primary forms of government, be it the um, republic rule, triumvirate. Um, There's several different um, types of governments that have been attempted in the Roman Empire or have been successful in the Roman Empire. And so these ten horns, likely being the ten nations, representative of, of the seven heads, the different types of, of ruling that they each might have and, and that the Roman empires had, had in the past. The scriptures tell us that one of these heads is wounded unto death. Oftentimes in scripture, people uh, say that that is Antichrist being wounded and revived. But that's not probably the way it is because um, this beast that rises up is most likely not just Antichrist. Antichrist is the head of an entire government here. And this government is that which has seven heads, not necessarily the man himself. Now, different people have taken this different directions. Some people say literally this will be Antichrist that is wounded and healed. Could be. But it also seems to make sense that these heads would be different representative forms of government, one of which will then be wounded and revived, that being the empire. We have not seen an empire such as Rome put together. There have been attempts. Napoleon attempted it. Charlemagne attempted it. Constantine attempted it. But we haven't seen anything. Constantine was a part of the, the Roman Empire. But anything quite like the days of the Caesars. Either way, however, we would completely expect the Western world, which has been the dominant culture of the world from the days of Rome until today, to continue as it shapes itself into a united nations led by a supreme emperor known as Antichrist. Whether the Bible's references to Antichrist 
um, are all references to a single man or to the government which he espouses, there's probably a mix of the two. And it can be a little bit difficult sometimes to distinguish between what the scriptures speak of the man, Antichrist, and how they speak of the government that he's over, this final empire. So we mentioned already that uh, unlike what most people say in relation to the final seven years, the entire world will not be a part of this empire as we reach the halfway point of the tribulation. In fact, the Western Empire will, will be the dominant of the four world empires. However, there still will be four. So we've talked about the revived Roman Empire, that empire that will raise up under Antichrist. This will be the empire that brokers the peace treaty with Israel. They will have Israel on their side. That's not surprising, right? The Western world has always had support for Israel, even today, even if it's just uh, support in name only. They have support for Israel. There will be a brokered peace agreement. It will come out of the Western world. But we also see a king of the north. This is the king that we learned about in Ezekiel. Do you remember in our Ezekiel series, uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39 in particular, we spoke of Gog of Magog? And this Gog of Magog would come from the north. According to Ezekiel 38, Gog is said to be the ruler of Magog and to be the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. History and archaeology bear out that and if you want to do the study, I can point you in the direction. But history and archaeology bear out that these names point to a people in the region of Caucasus and northern Armenia. Groups which today we call the Slavs and the Russians. And so the king of the north will be from that area likely of Russia and of the stands, the Kazakhstan and the Uzbekistan and all of those different stands underneath Russia, the former USSR. Ezekiel 38 also states that Russia will have allies in their opposition of the Western world and their attack on Israel. And in Ezekiel 38.5, the scriptures tell us that one of those allies will be Persia. Now, there is no Persia today. However, we know Persia as Iran today. Iran, likely being the ally that the Bible is speaking of when it speaks of Persia. The other nations mentioned, Kush and Phut, would generally be understood as Ethiopia and Libya. Libya just to the left of Egypt, Ethiopia to the south of Egypt. These are the areas that are characteristically understood to be the areas the Bible speaks of. Some people say that the Ethiopia and the Libya um, would, are actually derivatives of people up in the Turkey, Syria area, and they'll attribute it there, but uh, it seems as though Ethiopia and Libya um, are those two nations. And so that is going to be the Russian Confederacy. I don't know if you watch the news at all or read the news, but already Russia, Iran, and Syria are pretty buddy-buddy. And so a lot of this is already playing out as far as geopolitically um, what the Bible is saying here. 
Now the fourth ally mentioned in Ezekiel 38 is Gomer. And as far as archaeologists and, and uh, historians can tell, Gomer is modern-day Germany. So it's quite possible that modern-day Germany might have a piece of this alliance against the Western world as well. Now that one surprises me a little bit because Germany is a pretty important cog in the Western world right now. They're basically uh, the most important part of the European Union. They're the only part keeping it uh, solvent financially. And so that, that's a bit surprising, but it may not be if Germany's sick of bailing out the rest of Europe and they decide to break away from the European Union. Gog's uh, final fifth ally is said to be Togarma, which is generally understood to be the Turkey area. And then the area going over to the stands, as I mentioned, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and such. And so that will be a world empire or, or a, a, um, one of the particular uh, alliances that forms itself against Antichrist in these last days. That is led by the king of the north, most likely led by whoever's in control of Russia at the time. Then we have the king of the south, who's also mentioned in Ezekiel 38, the king of the south, uh, as well mentioned in Daniel 11. And in Daniel 11, verse 40, the scriptures tell us that the king of the south comes in direct conflict with this western world empire and antichrist. Both Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38 describe a combined invasion of, the, of Israel by the kings of the north and south who form an alliance to destroy the nation of Israel. We'll come back to that in a moment. So hold, hold up on the king of the south for just a moment. And let's talk for a few brief moments about the kings of the east. This is the final of the world empires at the time of the um, midpoint of the tribulation. And it really doesn't play, come into play at the midpoint. It'll come into play a little bit later in the tribulation. Uh, but, but it still bears mentioning in Revelation chapter 16, verse 2, the scriptures state that the kings of the east will march against the beast. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about who these kings of the east would be, but as we understand geopolitics, we can understand what this is going to be. Probably China, the Koreas, the Vietnams, maybe Japan, and possibly India as well, joining in there. And those would be the kings of the East that will also oppose Antichrist in these last days and oppose this Western world empire. They will all end up meeting in a valley in Israel where they will all seek to oppose God and will all lose. Thank God we know the end. Now, as we think about this, let's talk about this invasion of, invasion of Gog of Magog. The king of the north and the king of the south coming together to invade Israel. We already talked about it in Ezekiel. But I'd like to take what we learned in Ezekiel about Gog of Magog and bring it together. Remember what we said about Gog of Magog and why he went because Israel was at peace and he saw that and he wanted to invade because of that, but he wouldn't get to, right? Because the Lord destroyed him. It's been a long time since we were in Ezekiel 38 and 39, hasn't it? But we see some, some insights from Daniel 11 as well. 
an invasion by the king of the north and the king of the south, spoken of in Daniel 11 and described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And this is what inspired this series to begin with. I was in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I said, oh, I don't want to get into prophecy right now. There's just too much to talk about. So let's have a little mini-series after Ezekiel. That's what inspired this. So the Bible says um, uh, many things, and we'll read the passage in Daniel 11 in a moment. But Russia makes an alliance with Iran, Ethiopia, Libya, Turkey, Germany to invade Israel. They will also join with the kings of the south, likely Egypt and some of the other African nations, and they'll see Israel as easy prey because they've had this three-and-a-half-year peace accord. Israel is, is not worried about that. They'll also be in a land of wealth and prosperity. Uh, the, the king of the north will want the riches of the land of Israel. The details of this invasion from the perspective of the western world are given in Daniel 11.40-45. Let me read that to you. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him. This is both um, speaking of coming against Antichrist, like a whirlwind, with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. And I, I skip to verse 44 now. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, this being Antichrist. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So I skipped a couple of verses there for brevity, but, but the idea here is that the king of the north comes against Antichrist and Israel. Uh, Antichrist and Israel are on a campaign against the kings of the south. They work together. The kings of the north now are coming. Antichrist hears about these problems from the north and from the east as he's down in the south. And he begins to um, backtrack. However, there wouldn't be enough time. Gog of Magog and his alliance would destroy Israel. But we know that that doesn't happen. Because Ezekiel 38 and 39 reveals that God will destroy the majority of the northern army before Antichrist even has a chance to respond. In Ezekiel 38, verses 18 and 19, the Bible says this, And it shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. So the Bible says that God will fight against Gog himself. And Ezekiel 39 states that the Lord would destroy the armies of the king of the north and even destroy the land of Magog from which he came. So terrible will be the destruction, the scriptures tell us, that they'll be cleaning up the bodies from the destruction for seven months. You remember that, right? Seven months of cleanup and then uh, seven years of cleanup as far as the debris. Uh, in, in relation to that destruction. And back in Daniel 11, verse 41, it seems to indicate that Antichrist will use this invasion for three purposes on his part. 
First, it will allow him to invade the land under this peace covenant that he designed. Second, it will destroy the northern confederacy, bringing much more of the world under his power. And this is consistent with the claims of Revelation 13, because as we head into the second half of the tribulation, we will see that the world is under Antichrist's power. Finally, it will give Antichrist the pretense to claim a supernatural victory. Gog of Magog will be destroyed and it's quite possible that Antichrist will use this event to claim that he did it. That he's the one that called fire from heaven. That he's the one that destroyed Magog. That he's the one that destroyed Gog's army. And in destroying this army, he will claim a supernatural power and perhaps even claim status as a demigod. And it appears consistent that this will be the context within which Antichrist will become what the Scriptures say is the abomination of desolation. He will enter into the tabernacle in Jerusalem and as the prophecies confirm, he will cause oblations, sacrifices to cease. It will be at this point that the nation sees Antichrist's true character for he will fulfill the prophecy of Daniel and the prophecy confirmed by Jesus that this man is not their friend, that this man is not their Messiah, this man is their greatest enemy. And so Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 15 and following, flee. When you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, flee. Flee to the wilderness. Flee from the wrath of this terrible man. We've spoken of Antichrist, but have not yet spoken too much of his character. It will be in these last three and a half years that the full wickedness and character of this man will be revealed. Revelation 13 gives us a comprehensive picture of him as a man as well as his empire. He's described as the mouthpiece um, of the beast, being his empire, the eleventh horn that speaks terrible things against God. But in Revelation 13 verse 8, it's stated that the world will begin to worship this beast. Evidently, after Antichrist defiles the temple, places himself, exalting himself as God, the world will begin to worship him. All those that do not believe in Christ, that is, the Scriptures make very plain in Revelation 13.8, all those who do not believe in Christ, who, do not, who are not on God's side, will begin to worship this beast. In Revelation 13, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says this, And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue for how long? Forty and two months. Time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, forty-two months, one thousand two hundred and sixty days. And, um, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and all that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So all that are not believers will worship him. He will have power over them. And this will be coming in the second half of the tribulation. 
Um, it doesn't happen right away, but it will progress to this point. But Antichrist will not be alone in his efforts. And this is what uh, we need to spend the rest of our time thinking about before we apply today. Who is also going to be there with Antichrist at this time? Revelation tells us of a second institution, a second beast, who is led by a figurehead known as the false prophet. We'll talk about this institution, this false religion, more in the lessons to come. But this man will be both a religious and an economic representative who will devote all of his efforts unto causing the world to worship Antichrist, to worship the first beast. In Revelation 13, verses 11 through 14, the Bible says this, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Notice he came out of the earth, not the sea this time. The first beast came out of the sea, the Gentile world. The second beast comes out of the earth, out of Israel or Palestine or Canaan. He had two horns like a lamb and spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. These verses are part of the reason why people do believe that the figurehead Antichrist will be the wounded one. And again, I mentioned it is possible that it's the man that's wounded or maybe it's the institution itself that was wounded. This man and this institution, this false prophet will be devoted to the personal exaltation of Antichrist and his government in every form, even doing great miracles to prove Antichrist's power. And Revelation 13 goes on to say that this false prophet will cause the world to worship an image of the beast and will even cause that image to come to life, speaking great things and destroying all those who will not worship him. Probably the best known effort of this false prophet is seen economically. And we we see this teaching in Revelation 13, verses 16 through 18. The Bible says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save that he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six, or six, six, six. Typically speaking, we, we see that today as a modern sign of Satan worship, of, of Antichrist um, identification, or maybe of just being a, a, a modern day musician. Yeah. Yeah. They like to wear that number around a lot too. But it's a number associated with man more than it is anything else at this point. And people will talk about the mark of the beast. Now, the mark of the beast may, may or may not be synonymous with the name of the beast and with the number of his name. It might be that they'll have a choice between a mark or 
his name or the number, as the scriptures say, or the scriptures might be calling them all the same thing. It's a little bit ambiguous in the Greek as to which one is true. We do not know the details, but what we do know is that this mark will either be on the right hand or on the forehead, and it will identify you as being on the same team as having devotion to the government and its leader, and it will be mandatory in order to buy and sell. Now, we talk about this in, in hushed and, and, um, and kind of fearful tones when we speak of the mark of the beast and different things for buying and selling and such that we see today, microchips in people's hands and, and all those sorts of things. But it's not actually all that unusual in history, is it? That you would have to have something in order to transact business in a country that says you're friendly to them? That you have to have some sort of license, some sort of mark that says, I am, I am an ally to this man, to this government, if I'm going to transact business. Whether it's using currency with the heads of leaders on those coins, or whether it's having to have a, a license to sell saying that you've, you've complied with uh, local, state, federal, international laws. This isn't all that unusual. So, so we shouldn't see this as something majorly out of the ordinary. And it would make even more sense in a government ruled by an emperor, would it not? That you would prove yourself friendly to that emperor before you could transact business. But with this beast, this second beast, this false prophet, we are now introduced to what I call, and many others would call as well, an unholy trinity. We know that Satan is trying to reduplicate God's efforts in God forming his kingdom, and Satan's trying to form his kingdom as well. And we consider the unholy trinity of Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet meant to mimic God's holy trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Satan, trying to usurp the power of God the Father, Antichrist trying to usurp the glory due unto God the Son, and the false prophet trying to usurp the function of God the Holy Spirit as the enabler and the one who points everyone to worship the Son, right? That's the Holy Spirit's job. The Holy Spirit's job is to point attention to Jesus Christ, to compel the world to worship Christ. Antichrist will have a false prophet, a false religious system directed entirely toward having him worshipped, having him exalted. And so that's the midpoint. I've given you some introductions as well to the four world empires, to the Antichrist, the first beast, to the false prophet, the second beast. And we'll see how these Men and these systems play out. But as we close this evening, I'd like us to apply by getting practical for a moment with this question. We all recognize that number, right? 666. But do we recognize the meaning and how well are we doing at rejecting it? The Bible calls this number the number of man. Six falls just so short of the divine number of perfection, right? Seven. Those who live at that time, 
the time of the end will have a choice, either to accept this mark or this name or this number of the beast and live peaceably, or reject this mark and this name, this number, and be outcasts of society. But in reality, this probably won't be as much of a choice as it will be a natural extension of a choice that they've already made. The majority of the world will be wholly devoted to this wicked system from day one. We're looking at something that happens at the, at the midway point of the tribulation. But the, the majority of the world will be wholly devoted to Antichrist and his system from day one. Because right now, the majority of the world is already caught up in Antichrist and his system. Is it not? The world is already hurtling toward this end. The world is already on board with Satan and his system and his schemes and his lusts and his desires and all of the evil that is Satan and his false kingdom. Those who love God will not accept the mark as the natural extension of their love and loyalty to God. And they will refuse to proclaim another as deity. But do you recognize how many things in this world already bear the mark of Antichrist? John told us, and we looked at it last week in 1 John 4, that, that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. It's already operating among us. Yes, we may not see 666 tattooed on things physically. We might. But the existence of the wickedness of this world already serves to glorify mankind and to reject the truth of God's Word. Every time you hear humanists get up and glorify themselves, every time you hear a man stand up and glorify himself, every time you see a government stand up and glorify itself, you already are seeing the marks of that number of man. That which falls just short of God and yet is attempting to exalt itself above God. And so the Spirit is already alive and well in the world, and it has been since the beginning. We are already seeing the marks of Antichrist alive and well in this world. It should not surprise us, but what ought to surprise us is how often we spend our time and our money and we place our loyalty upon those things that are so devoted to the system of Antichrist. The deepest expression of man's pride and rebellion are exhibited in our governments and our entertainment and even commerce today. And believers, while it's our freedom to live in this world and to use the things of this world, we ought not come to love this world. Because this world is hurtling toward the system that we, saw, we see erected tonight. And so, of course, the question I ask you as we close, are you on God's side? If that choice were to be tonight, to choose all of the glory of this world and of man's system or to ch and, and live at peace or to be an outcast of the system but to stand with God, what choice would you make? If you're a believer, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, well then you've made your choice. You stand with God. But if you are in this room this evening and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, may I tell you that you've already made the choice as well. 
If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you have never received the gift of salvation, then if you were to choose right now, you choose to stand with the beast. That's the choice you've made by rejecting Christ. See, the Bible says we're all sinners, and because we're sinners, we're on our way to a sinner's hell. Because we are sinners, by the very virtue of us being sinners, we have rebelled against God. But the Scriptures say that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear on the cross the sin that you've committed. Every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future. You say, Pastor, I'm not a sinner. Well, yes, you are. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But I do so many good things, Pastor. The Bible says that all of the good things we do are nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of God. So we've fallen short. And the only way that we can be reconciled under the Father, the only way we can have a relationship with Him, the only way we can be restored in our relationship is by accepting the gift that Jesus Christ purchased. He died on the cross. And when He was on the cross, He bore our sin. He bore your sin. He bore my sin. Every sin, past, present, and future. Then He was buried, but He didn't stay buried. The Bible says He rose again the third day in victory over death. And when He claimed victory over death, because He lived, because He now has the keys to death, He can say, you get eternal life. He can grant those who believe on Him a home in heaven forever. And so the question is, if you were to die right now, do you know for sure that you have received the gift of eternal life? Have you ever placed your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ? The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've never been saved, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, would you do so tonight? Would you even quietly in your seat now tell God that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, that He was buried, that He rose again, and that you accept that gift for yourself. See, because it's not enough just to know Jesus did it, we have to accept it. And on the authority of the Scriptures, the Bible says that if you will accept that gift, that God will save you from your sins. So that proverbially, you are going from accepting what would be all that Antichrist and Satan have to offer in this world to siding with God knowing that in doing so, you are rejecting the pleasures of this world, but you are gaining an eternity of life and joy with Christ forever. If you made that decision tonight to accept Christ as your Savior, I hope you'd come and tell me. And perhaps you say, well, I, I, I think I know what you mean, Pastor. I, I want to do it, but I just don't quite understand fully. I don't, I'm not quite there. Would you come and see me or ask someone we can open a Bible, show you more about what it means to be saved. And Christian, how much of your time and your effort and your love and your money are you putting into that which is defined by Antichrist and his system? May we be willing to set aside that which is no profit, that which exalts man above God, 
in order that we can exalt God more and more. Let's pray together.